Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Thank you for letting me help you learn God's Word. And if you want to learn more, go to markdriscoll.org. I've got a weekly newsletter answering your questions, daily devotions, blogs that are Bible teaching and their orientation, and a small mountain of sermons going through lots of books of the Bible. So join me at markdriscoll.org and we'll help you learn even more of God's Word. The lecture today is a little, little sharing with you is 10 ways that God helps people. And um, it's in the app and it'll be uh, something for you to consider taking notes on. Here's the, here's the backdrop. So I was a senior pastor for almost 20 years, uh, teaching the Bible every week, went through a few dozen books of the Bible. And uh, my wife, Grace and I took a break, figured it was time for a little bit of a break, heal up and learn. And that was one of the most remarkably wonderful seasons of our life because all of a sudden we didn't have the regular responsibilities of ministry and it was really a season of learning. So it was a great blessing in that regard. And what happened was some people met with us, counselors, pastors, um, friends. Some people flew in from around the country. Some lived near us. Some we got on planes, went to their house, went to their church, had dinner with their family and just asked them, you know, what wisdom would you have for us? What could we learn? And so for a season went from, uh, teaching to pretty much just being the student. And it was actually a really rich time. And what we realized as we were meeting with different ministry leaders, they kept asking different questions. They kept coming at life from different angles and they kept applying different parts of God's word. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you probably are familiar with some of these categories, but not all of these categories. And as we come together as a church family, if we really wanna be biblical and help people with a fullness of God's word, I think that fully understanding the categories that God gives is most helpful. And the reason I know this is not because I'm really smart and figured it out, is because I was in a place that other people helped me and they served me and they loved me. And as Grace and I processed and talked about it, they were all really helpful. And together they were actually the most helpful season of our whole life. So here are uh, some of the categories. And I'm sure that I have uh, missed some and I'm sure that there is more to learn, uh, but I'll walk through these uh, fairly quickly. Sin and repentance, idolatry and worship, condemnation and forgiveness, oppression and deliverance, slavery and freedom, lies and truth, brokenness and healing, defilement and cleansing, folly and wisdom, injustice and justice. Uh, two things, number one, I want you to figure out, huh, that's where I have been taught or that's where I lean and so I'm strong there. Hmm, that's not an area I'm very familiar with. That'd be a place for me to learn to grow. Secondly, as you're helping others, loving others, serving others, especially in life groups, what are the ways to help them in the fullness of God's word? So the first category, sin and repentance, this is more from what I'll call the reformed tradition. I'm gonna use a little shorthand because this is a bit of a leader lecture. Um, you'll also hear this referred to sometimes as the law and the gospel. And it comes from Protestant reformers like Luther and Calvin who were classically trained as lawyers before they became pastors. So when they come to the Bible, they come more with a legal forensic mind. Law, gospel. So they tend to go from Moses to Paul. The law is all of our shortcomings. The gospel is the good news of Jesus satisfying the demands of law for us. And so the key to the reformed ideology is see your sin and repent. And this is really what all of Protestantism is built on. So when Martin Luther nailed something called the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door, the first line, and that was sort of the beginning of modern day Protestantism, his first line was all of a Christian's life is one of repentance. So repentance, repentance, repentance. Read the Bible, see your sin, repent, right? Let the law convict you of sin. Let the gospel forgive you of sin. And this is really where Christianity begins. I'll give you one scripture, uh, Acts 2.38, Peter at the first sermon at Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter gets up and he's like, what's the bottom line? Repent of your sins and be forgiven and receive the Holy Spirit. How many of you would say, I'm pretty familiar with that category, more that reformed tradition? Okay, we're sin and repentance, okay? Um, the next one, idolatry and worship is again more reformed, but if you're from a Lutheran background, this is more common in Lutheranism. And it comes from the Heidelberg Confession and Catechism by Martin Luther. Um, and so 
Martin Luther goes to the 10 commandments and he says that the first two commandments, if you obey those, you don't violate the rest. So the first commandment is there's one God. And the second commandment is you worship him alone. And Martin Luther says, if you do that, you won't worship money and steal. You won't worship your reputation and lie. You won't worship somebody else and covet your neighbor's spouse. So Martin Luther says that everything comes down to a worship issue that we're created to be unceasing continual worshipers. And if we don't worship God, we worship someone or something else. And so we worship our way into sin. And as we worship God, we worship our way out of sin. This would be very familiar in more reform circles. This is very common in sort of current day modern reform thought. And uh, you can find it biblically in places like 1 John chapter five, the very last line of that whole book of the Bible Here's his last line, keep yourselves from idols. So the person who has an addiction, they're worshiping drugs or alcohol or sex or money or fame or power. The problem is that someone or something is the center of their life and all of their energy is orbiting around it. They need God to be the center of their life. And if they would worship God, then everything else in their life would be in its appropriate place. So it's a worship problem. How many of you are fairly familiar with the idolatry and worship categories? Okay, some of you are. Um, third category, condemnation and forgiveness. This is more general, what I'll call evangelical Christianity. And the problem here is that we feel condemned because of our sin. We feel guilty, we feel dirty, we feel haunted, we feel unqualified, we feel rejected by God. And God remedies that with full, free and total forgiveness. And the point here is that um, some people have this sense of shame because of either what they've done or what has been done to them. And Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the answer there is you feel condemned, you feel beaten up, you feel like you're broken and unloved or rejected by God. You're haunted by some of the things you've done or the things that have been done to you. You need to experience the full forgiveness that Jesus Christ provides. And if you would receive that forgiveness, that would take off the condemnation and that would put on the forgiveness and you'd get your joy in your life back. How many of you are more familiar with sort of that condemnation and forgiveness categories? Okay, get those. Um, oppression and deliverance. This is more my Pentecostal friends, right? You can go to a reformed church and nobody talks about the devil. And if you go to a Pentecostal church, you wonder if he's a member because they're always talking about him. Uh, okay, so they'll talk about Satan and demons. So uh, oppression and deliverance. Okay, this is more of my Pentecostal friends. How many of you come from, how many of you come from more of a reformed background, more reformed-ish? Some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. That's okay. How many of you more general evangelical background? Okay, how many of you more, next hands, more Pentecostal background? You can raise both hands. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I come from Pentecostal background. Okay, uh, um, in the Pentecostal tradition, the problem is demonic satanic oppression, that Satan is beating you, harassing you and harming you and Jesus comes to deliver you. Is this biblical? Actually it is. Actually all of these are biblical. I, I, get, frustrating. I get frustrated a lot, but I, I remember in the middle when Grace and I were meeting with people, uh, some people were asking like, are you getting biblical counseling? Yeah, we're meeting with lots of Christians who love Jesus and believe the Bible. And what we're finding is as they all contribute, we're getting actually biblical counseling, meaning the whole Bible's getting used. And what you find is different teams, different traditions, different tribes, they'll go to certain parts of the Bible and they're kind of sometimes neglecting others. And so I think by learning from everybody, you get healthier and you get a little bigger understanding of what it means to be biblical. And I hope you hear my heart in this. I am a Bible guy. And if there's something in the scriptures, I wanna learn what that is because it's good and I need it. And if my tradition or my tendency is to overlook a part, I, I wanna pay attention to that so I don't miss any part of God's word. So in the oppression and deliverance category, I'll give you uh, a scripture, uh, Acts 10, 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So the problem is that Satan and demons have power and they're using their power to oppress you, to harm you, to harass you. And Jesus comes with more power and more authority and he has the power and authority to deliver you from your oppression. Some people are haunted, some people are tormented and Jesus comes to set them free. It says that uh, 
God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. In this category, you can meet certain people, they do love Jesus, they're just oppressed. They're not possessed in that they belong to Satan. It's that they love the Lord, they belong to the Lord and Satan is oppressing them. He is discouraging them. He is lying to them. He is tormenting them. He is harming them. Jesus needs to deliver them and set them free, okay? And when you, some of you have experienced deliverance in your life where there was something that you were enslaved by or you were addicted to and Jesus just got you out. You just woke up one day, you're like, uh, that's gone and I don't know what happened. Jesus delivered you. He got you out of those circumstances and situations. And he did that in a supernatural, powerful way because he is a king and that's what his kingdom is like. His kingdom is one of deliverance and freedom, not one of oppression and death, okay? How many of you are more familiar with the oppression and deliverance categories, okay? A couple of you, it means you come from probably more of a Pentecostal, maybe a charismatic background. Um, I think sometimes uh, um, a lot of this is gonna be sort of a verbal processing, but hang with me. Sometimes people that don't understand Satan and demons, when things happen, they think it's either them or God. So they're like, was it me? Okay, then I have self-contempt. Was it God? Then I have God contempt. And meanwhile, Satan is chuckling because he realizes they never consider me. Sometimes it's Satan and demons that are at work. And we don't need to beat ourselves up and we don't need to beat God up. We need to invite the Holy Spirit to go beat them up so that we can get delivered, okay? Um, slavery and freedom, category five. Um, this is what you'll get in those who are more involved in what I'll call recovery ministry. They're working with people that have addictions and compulsions and, and, and some really enslaving life habits. Um, and the concept there is that you're in slavery to something. This can be to any sort of addiction, think of whatever addiction can come to mind, that you're enslaved by it and you can't get free. How do you know you're enslaved to something? It's bad for you and you can't stop. In our culture, we'll use the language of addiction. The Bible's language for addiction is slavery. It's slavery. You're like, you need to stop drinking, I can't. Well, then you're a slave to it. You're a slave to it. You need to stop doing X, Y, or Z. It's very unhealthy for you. I can't stop then you're a slave. Anything that's overtaken or mastered you, it's a slave master. And so the, the storyline of the Exodus is that Pharaoh is this cruel taskmaster who has enslaved God's people so they're not free to worship him. And God comes and delivers them supernaturally and liberates them so that they're free to worship God. That's the Bible's paradigm for um, freedom. Freedom is not freedom from something Freedom is freedom to someone. God doesn't just get us out of an addiction. He gets us out of an addiction for a relationship with him. So this is where Christian understanding of freedom is different. Our goal is not to just get people off drugs or alcohol or pornography or gambling, but to get them free from something so they're free to someone to have a relationship with Jesus that whatever hurt or need you thought you were meeting with that slavery and addiction that is only met ultimately in relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it says this in Luke chapter four, verses 18. Here's Jesus, he quotes Isaiah and he's quoting Isaiah early in his ministry, he goes into, um, he goes into God's house, you know, synagogue meeting and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he reads it. And this is sort of Jesus' declaration and proclamation at the beginning of his ministry about what God the Father has sent him to do. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. So he's telling us he's gonna do his life and ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. People are held captive by sin. They're in slavery to it. And Jesus says, I've come to set them free. I've, set, I've come to get people out of this, this prison of addiction or compulsion that they live in. It's a devastating thing as a Christian to see someone who has accepted slavery as their life status. I have to accept this abusive relationship. I have to continue in this addictive death spiral. 
No, Jesus says, I've come to set captives free. I've come to get people out of their slavery so they can move on with their life. And the key is once God sets us free, we need to choose to live free. This is again, the story of the Exodus. God sets them free, parts the Red Sea, sets them free, and they start wanting to go back to Egypt. Sometimes we can be set free and we go back to old sinful behaviors and lifestyles and addictions. And it's like, no, you're not just set free for something, you're set free for someone. That's a relationship with Jesus. You don't wanna go back to your slavery. Jesus says it this way, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a lot there. Jesus comes filled with the Holy Spirit to preach, but his words deliver people from oppression and slavery, sets them free from demonic torment and gives them their life back so that they can live in relationship with God, okay? Some of you that work with people who are in uh, addiction cycles, this is the biblical language. Some of you, how many of you are more familiar with this kind of ideology, this kind of biblical instruction, the, the slavery and freedom? You probably have worked with those who are addicts and, and have those kinds of addictions. Um, lies and truth. This is more our fundamental friends. Um, the fundamental friends are all about what's the truth, what's the truth, what's the truth, what's the truth, okay? And in this um, paradigm, the problem is we believe lies. And Jesus says in John 8, 44, that the devil is a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. What I told you today is in the sermon, Satan's first language is lying. He's, that's his primary language, okay? His secondary language, he can learn Chinese or Portuguese or he can learn to speak Spanish, but his first, he's bilingual, but his first language is lying. And then he will use other languages to promulgate his lies. And what Jesus says, all he ever does is lie. Lying is demonic, lying is satanic. Even the fact that we live in a world that says, no, there's just different perspectives and interpretations. Jesus would say, that's lying. And lying really counts and lying is demonic. Lying is satanic. Jesus comes along and then he says in that same chapter of John eight, he says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So in this paradigm, that's a lie. What's the truth? That's a lie. What's the truth? And our fundamental friends will keep coming back. What's the Bible say? What's the Bible say? What's the Bible say? What's the Bible say? Truth, 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 truth. Okay. Now, I'll just pause here as I'm thinking about it. Can you see where when you're dealing with different people, maybe they have different things going on. And what happens is different teams, tribes, and traditions Different churches and ministries, they specialize in one area and maybe overlook or neglect another, which means they can help some people, but not all people. They can bring some help, but not total help. We wanna do our best by God's grace, humbly through the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God to help as many people as we can, as well as we can. Some people, their issue is truth and lies, but not always. There's a guy named Job in the Bible and uh, a torpedo literally hits his life. You probably know this story. Um, everyone dies except for his wife, which wasn't a real blessing, I hate to say it, okay? <laughs> she keeps telling him, just curse God and die. She's not, she's not a real encourager, okay? His Bible college buddies show up and they're just doing uh, number one and number six. Where's your sin? Where's your sin? Where's your sin? Was that the problem? No. Job wasn't perfect, but he was a righteous man. What lies do you believe? What lies do you believe? What lies do you believe? Was that the problem? No. You know what it was? It was oppression. Satan attacked him. And when Satan is attacking someone to come up and say, well, where is your sin? Is a wrong use of a good verse. There is such thing as a wrong use of a good verse, amen? His friends only had certain categories. There must be sin and lies, we will find them. And he's like, that's not the issue. So the Bible kind of jokingly calls Job's friends his comforters. I don't think that would hold up in court. They weren't very comforting. They weren't there to really comfort him. You can have the truth of God's word misapplied to a situation and as a result, you are saying what the scriptures say, but you're not saying what the scriptures would say to that person in that moment. So 
Does that make sense? And what could happen is some of us get so familiar with our paradigm, we just use it all the time. And it works for some people, it doesn't work for everybody. And I'll say this too, sometimes there's multiple things going on, right? Um, let's say for example, um, there was a young woman who uh, was in slavery. Her dad was very, very, very abusive and violent and her home was a dangerous place. She was living, living in a torment situation. And as a result, um, she decided that the center of her, her whole life would be uh, not angering her father. He's like a grenade with a pin pulled, so she will do whatever it takes to please him and not set him off because he's very dangerous. Well, then she could believe a lot of lies about God, that God is like that, that her, her heavenly father is like her earthly father and that he's always angry and gonna hurt her and she needs to obey him or he is going to crush her. And so if we're gonna help a young woman like that, we gotta say, okay, there's a lot of things going on here. And actually that's oppression. The way your father treated you was demonic and the way you're now projecting that on your heavenly father is unhealthy. That's not truly who he is. Do you see where there's a lot of layers that are going on here? If you just come up to that person and say, well, that's a lie. Okay, that's, that's accurate, but that's not total. We need to be very, very discerning um, when we deal with people. And I believe as a younger pastor, I certainly could have done a much better job with this. And the, the reason I learned these things, again, is not because I'm bright, but because I was helped. Some very godly people met with us and each of them came from a different tradition, a different perspective. They all were Bible people. They loved the scriptures. They, they were all Jesus people. They loved Jesus. They were all Holy Spirit people. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They all had the heart of God the Father. But as Grace and I met with these people, it was like, huh, they're opening up an understanding in God's word. And those of you who know the Bible, you will see that these are themes and threads through the whole Bible. We're not pulling stuff out of the corner and trying to make it into something it's not. These are major themes and threads. Um, how about this one? Uh, brokenness and healing. Um, if you're familiar with that category, you probably come from more of a charismatic tradition, what I'll call the charismatic tradition. Um, how many of you are more familiar with brokenness and healing as a category? Okay. What I find fascinating, um, I'll, just, I'll just be honest with you, why not, huh? Um, Grace and I sat down, we have got on a plane, we flew out of state, met with a, um, I, I won't name drop or anything, but a, a very well-known uh, Christian couple, family, um, godly people, love the Lord, know the word. We didn't know them very well. And, uh, and they brought us to their home for a couple of days to hang out with them and their kids and their grandkids. It was a very healthy, loving family. Uh, these are people that we hold as friends to this day and we praise God for their investment in our life. And we sat down with them and, um, and up until that point, almost everybody we met with was category one which after a while, um, you feel like you're a nail and everyone is a hammer. <laughs> um, and they, they started here in seven. They said, uh, where are you broken? Hmm. That was very uh, inviting. It meant they were safe. They were asking, Kind of like when you go into the doctor and the doctor says, tell me where it hurts. Right? What the doctor doesn't do is start hitting you until they hear you scream and then they found it. Right? They, they're, they're asking you where it hurts so that they can be um, a little more gentle in that area, wherever that source of pain might be. And uh, I said, well, you know, thanks for asking. And they said, well, you know what you need? You need healing. I said, okay, we'll explain that. Okay, I'm, at this point, I'm a Bible teacher. I've been teaching for 20 some years. I've written a lot of books. I've taught all over the world. And he said, uh, the pastor just said, well, you need inner healing. Here's what I said. What's that? What's that? He said, you don't know what inner healing is? I said, I, I've heard about it. I, I, like, I don't know. What, I, I'm not sure what you're talking about. He looked at me like I just landed from Mars because in the charismatic world, people are broken and they need healing. 
I said, from the tradition I come from, we don't really talk about that. He looked at me and said, well, I thought you were a Bible guy. I'm paraphrasing. I said, well, I thought I was too, but apparently not as much as I thought. He said, well, this is in the Bible. I said, yeah. He said, you know, all the verses in the Bible about healing, some of them are not just for the body. Some of them are for the heart. Some of them are for the soul. Let me ask you, friends, does the Bible say you can have a broken heart? Oh, it does. So that needs to be healed. Sometimes people aren't in sin, they're just broken. They're devastated by what has happened to them and they don't know how to proceed forward in their life because they're hurt so bad, they're damaged. A friend of mine says, I feel like I got shot in the soul. Well, then your soul needs to heal. I'll give you a scripture. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Sometimes I find that people are angry or they act out and a lot of times under that is a brokenness that's not been healed. It's a, it's a wound in the heart of the soul that, that the great physician has not been invited to do his healing work in. And as a result, they're very tender in that place. So they, they get very defensive and responsive. Here at the Trinity Church, we wanna use all of God's word, but many of the people that I'm dealing with, if I could just be honest, I won't divulge confidentiality from counseling appointments, but even dealing with some people here at the Trinity Church that have grown up in the church, they have received a tremendous amount of Bible teaching. They do love the Lord. When hard times come or something very difficult has happened in their life, all they keep asking is, for example, like let's say questions one and two, where's my sin, where's my idol? And sometimes that's true and part of it, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not. This is where we need to be careful with our categories. I dealt with a young family not too long ago and uh, they miscarried. They were super excited to be parents and the baby died in the mother's womb. Can we say it's okay if they're feeling brokenness? Can we say that? They met with someone who only worked in category two and they said, well, you're grieving because the child was your idol. It's like, uh, yeah, I wouldn't use that category for the miscarrying mom. Do you feel that? Again, you can use one biblical category for everybody and you are helping and hurting people because some people need it, but that's not for everybody. Like when you go to the doctor, we don't give everybody the same prescription, amen? Different people, different diagnosis, different treatment, different treatment. I met with this couple and I said, to ask this woman, I said, uh, how's your grieving and your mourning and your lamenting period going? She said, I didn't know I was allowed to. I thought it was an idol and I'm not supposed to worship idols. That's not an idol, that's a baby. The baby died, right? You, you need to grieve, you need to mourn, right? That's how God binds up the brokenhearted is through the grieving and lamenting and mourning process. Sometimes people just think, I just need to move on. Sometimes you need to heal up and then move on. And if you just move on without healing up, the same thing can happen to your soul and your heart that happens to your body. How many of you, you've had a major accident or injury and you just decided, I'm just gonna move forward, but it didn't get set, it didn't heal. And as a result, you were not healthy. Same can happen in your heart, your emotional life, same can happen in your soul, your spiritual life. So this couple we met with, it was interesting. <laughs> I, want to be, I want to be careful with this. We spent most of our time with them praying. I said, well, what do you think we should do? They said, let's just spend most of the rest of the day just praying. I said, why is that? They said, you know what? Only the Lord can heal at the soul or the heart level. And we need to spend a lot of time in prayer and invite the Holy Spirit to heal. Does that make sense? It's helpful, isn't it? It's helpful. How many of you are more familiar with brokenness and healing? Okay. If you're Bible people that haven't done a lot of study on this, just start studying in your Bible about brokenness and healing and the brokenhearted and God comes to bind up the brokenhearted. Another one is defilement and cleansing and the problem solution paradigm here is uh, 
it's complicated. Um, so when Gracie and I uh, had our first ministry, we figured out that if we brought together all of the sexual assault victims at that point, we'd still have a mega church. Okay. Uh, statistically, one in three women, one in four men reports being sexually assaulted, but actually it's the most underreported crime. And so it's much higher than that. Okay. What we found was with people who were sexual assault victims, once they were assaulted, can you guess what the first thing was that they did? They took a shower. Almost every assault victim I've ever met, the first thing they did was take a shower. Why? They felt defiled and they wanted cleansing. They felt defiled and they wanted cleansing. We know what to do when we sin. We repent and we should. What happens when you're sinned against. Christianity is much weaker on this point. Little kid gets molested, woman gets abused. Can you repent? You didn't, you didn't do anything. So how do you deal with sin that was committed against you? Because here's the truth. We all sin and people sin against us. And sometimes we victimize others and sometimes we're the victim. So Christianity comes along and rightly says, well, when you sin, repent, which is true. But what about when you're the one who was sinned against? Does that make sense? What happens to those who have been sinned against? They feel defiled. This is a great theme in the Old Testament, unclean, defiled. Do you ever wonder in the Old Testament why they keep saying, clean your home and get rid of all of these, you know, you know all these things out of your home? It's a way of showing that God's people need to be cleansed. What happens when people are sinned against, especially those that are victimized and traumatized, those that are used and abused, they'll say something like this, I feel dirty. They start to wear their abuse or the sin against them as an identity. Um, there's mixed ages in the room, so I wanna be careful with this, but um, Early in my pastoral ministry, there was a young woman who would have very egregious, unhealthy behavior. Um, and I asked her, I said, why do you do that? I said, you, you, you don't have to do that. She said, quote, I'm a dirty girl, so I do dirty things. I said, who told you that? She said, my grandfather. When would he tell you that? After he would come into my room at night, okay? That's demonic, that's oppression. And what that's done is that has set for her an identity based not upon what Jesus has done for her, but based upon what her abuser has done to her. You get that? I know the temperature in the room is adjusting. I love you, okay, you guys are my leaders. My goal is to help you heal up so you can help others. I looked at her, I said, you're not defined by what you do or what has been done to you. You're defined by what Jesus has done for you. And I, I looked at her and I said, uh, what color do God's people always wear in the Bible? What, co what color do God's people wear? White. Why? Because they've been made clean. Right? This is why we live in Telegal. Let's say she's not lived a perfect life and it's her wedding day. And she asks, do I get to wear white? She loves Jesus. What's the answer? You get to wear white. Because we see you as he sees you. We see you as he sees you. That's why God's people in the Bible, they always wear white. That's why in Revelation, uh, the church, the bride, is given white linen clean to wear. It's when God's people would go up to worship, they would literally ascend to the mount to worship God, and they would make their pilgrimage, and at the base of... Uh, of the mountain where the temple was, they would cleanse themselves bodily. They would repent of their sins. They would put on white. And then they would sing, if you read the book of Psalms, they would read what's called the Psalms of Ascent. It was literally ascending up into the presence of God. And it's showing that God has made me clean. I don't wear my past. I don't wear my sin. I don't wear my abuse, right? I wear the righteousness of God in Christ. Um, 
that brings to mind, there's a section in Zechariah, I think it's chapter three, where there's this picture of a high priest and, and there's this picture of a person and the, 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 the high priest is Jesus and the person is supposed to be like us. And it says that the person is wearing just filthy garments and that the high priest is wearing clean, white, pure garments. And what it says is that all of our filthy rags go to the high priest and all of his clean white robes go to us. That's what Jesus does on the cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Uh, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. There are certain people, they just can't get over what they've done or they can't get over what has been done to them and that defilement has come upon them. And then the good news of the Bible is we're gonna take that off of you. Jesus wore that on the cross and we're gonna put his righteousness on you. We now choose to see you as God chooses to see you in Christ, clean, pure, forgiven, righteous. People need this. People need this. This is biblically, if you want to study, it's called the doctrine of expiation. Justification is our sin and repentance, forensic legal status before God. A regeneration is where we become a new person and we're delivered and we get the power of the Holy Spirit. Expiation is ultimately this doctrine of cleansing that we're made clean in Christ. So many things happened at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So many wonderful, extraordinary, glorious helpful things happened at the cross of Jesus. Forgiveness of sin is absolutely at or near the top of the list to God's glory, but also included broken people get healed and dirty people get made clean. Um, if you're more familiar with that, that's where you are probably more familiar with uh, various kinds of integrated Christian counseling. And it's setting for someone an identity. You're only defined by one of three things what you do, what someone has done to you, or what Jesus has done for you. Those are really only three sources of your identity. If it's what you've done, then you're either gonna become proud or depressed. Proud, I'm a good person. Depressed, I'm a bad person. If it's by what others have done to you, then you have to wear your worst day every day. And the worst thing that ever happens to you becomes the thing that defines you. If your identity is established by Jesus, well, then you get to be declared clean and righteous and acceptable and pure in his sight, okay? How many of you are more familiar with the defilement and cleansing categories? Probably work with abuse victims and, and, and counseling situations. And if you do so, thank you for doing so. The other one's folly and wisdom. Uh, the Bible has uh, good news. It has uh, good deeds. And the Bible also has good advice. And a lot of the good advice is wisdom and folly. It's do this, don't do that. Um, I'll give you one uh, scripture, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of this world is folly with God. And sometimes people aren't in sin, they just keep making very foolish decisions. Foolish people are not stupid, they just don't understand reality or they don't accept reality. And as a result, the decisions they make don't lead to the life that they want. And sometimes they're confused, they don't understand cause and effect, reaping and sowing. So this is, so let me say this. Um, sin and repentance is more the, the legal forensic category. Like I told you, Luther and Calvin are attorneys. So when they come to the Bible, it's law, gospel, law, gospel, law, gospel, sin, repentance, sin, repentance, sin, repentance, Moses, Paul, Moses, Paul, Moses, Paul. I would lean reformed. We could argue about that. I love you. I don't want to argue about it. But what the reformers missed is the wisdom literature. Calvin, Luther, many of the great Protestant reformers, they didn't touch the wisdom literature. They didn't get into the Song of Solomon. They didn't get into Proverbs. They didn't get into Ecclesiastes. They didn't get into Job. And they struggled with wisdom books in the New Testament like James and Martin Luther called it an epistle of straw. And he questioned, we can argue how vocally he did, but he questioned whether or not the book of James should even be in the, in the Bible. Because those are wisdom books. And if your whole paradigm is truth and lies or sin and repentance, you don't know what to do with wisdom and folly because it's a different category. But how many things in people's lives, it fits in the category of folly. It's like, why are you dating a non-Christian? 
Oh, because I want a loving, happy relationship. Well, uh, uh, do you understand that? What? That doesn't make any sense. You know, like if they don't know Jesus, they don't even understand you. Like that's foolish. Why are you doing that? You know, these categories of wisdom and folly are found in the wisdom literature, as I said, certain categories in the Bible. And when we're dealing with people, sometimes it is literally very, very practical. It is, okay, what are you doing? Is that a good idea? What are you doing? Is that a good idea? No, it's foolishness. And sometimes it's not even sin to repent of, it's just foolishness to correct. You know what I'm talking about? There are some people you're like, I, I don't understand. Like uh, there's, a, there's somebody I know, they're like, uh, they never set their alarm clock. And so they're always late to work. I don't know if that's a sin to repent of, maybe it is, but it's just foolishness. Get an alarm, just get an alarm. Um, and so sometimes when we're helping people, it's very practical how to set a budget, how to pick a friend, how to get a job, right? How to, how to listen to others, just practical stuff. How many of you are more familiar with wisdom and folly? A lot of what is called seeker Christianity and more contemporary felt needs Christianity falls into that category. It's all do this, don't do that. And sometimes the knock on it is, it kind of neglects the other categories and it just turns into another kind of self-help rather than God help. And it's not necessarily a bad thing and it is in the Bible, but if it's the only thing that you ever study, you could get a lot of good advice and never get to the good news of Jesus, okay? And then the last one, injustice and justice, and these are more your progressives and your liberals, if we could use that language. Um, these are people who say, you know what? A lot of people's problems are not just individual, they're systemic. If you grew up in a violent neighborhood and there's no dads and there's a lot of gangs and drugs and violence and the kids are hungry and there's not economic opportunity and the schools are failing, then children end up making certain decisions that lead to certain kind of lifestyles. Is there any truth in that? I grew up next to a strip club behind an airport where the Green River Killer and Ted Bundy picked up their victims. That's where I grew up. And I could totally tell you it was systematic. Uh, there's no dads, moms are working all day, kids are home all by themselves, they're bored with no money, and they get into lots of trouble. Uh, I think the first funeral I went to was a middle school friend of mine who died of a drug overdose. Okay? Some of it's systemic. Some of it is you grow up in homes where drug use and abuse or violence or certain you know, really sinful behaviors are sort of hardwired into you as just normative. And if you don't experience anything else, you don't know that they're abnormal. People would hold this, uh, I'll give you one verse, Psalm 103, six, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And these people would say, we can't make everything just an individual level. This is where we need to be involved politically or socially or policy or laws. This is where we need to reinvent the whole system because it's, it's not setting up people for success. It's actually putting people in harm's way. And so I would ask you, is that true? It is true because we're not just sinful individuals. We're all together in something called culture and sinful individuals make a sinful culture. How many of you are more familiar with injustice and justice, right? So here's my big idea. This is what it means to be biblical. And some of you may say you missed some, probably did, probably did. And I hope by God's grace to keep learning. For your well-being, I would ask you, what is the area or areas you'd say, I'm strong? I think biblically, I can think of my verses, I get that. And then where are you weak? You say, that? I, I, I don't think I'd have a lot to say there. That may be an area for you to dig deeper in your biblical study. How many of you are in your own life, the Holy Spirit, even as I have this honor of lecturing to you, highlights something and says, I need to do some work with you there. Maybe the Holy Spirit is highlighting something for you, just for you personally, not for your ministry, your family, but first and foremost, personally. How many of you, if you think of people in your life that you love, or maybe their family, friends, coworkers, kids, neighbors, 
and they're struggling or they're having a hard time. And one of these categories you say, ah, problem, solution. If they could know that, if they could believe that, that could really help them. Does this make sense? So this is the first time I've done a full sort of lecture. It's more of a free form ramble. What, this, you guys are my, you guys are my uh, focus group, okay? Um, what do you think? Does this make sense? What I find very sad is that Christians will argue over these things rather than teach one another these things. Okay? Again, I didn't arrive at this, but by a difficult season where wonderful people sat us down, opened the Bible, and helped us look at things from various angles that are all in the Word of God and all very, very, very helpful. So this is what we mean at the Trinity Church by being a, a, a Bible-based church. Not that we just wanna pick one theme or thread of the Bible and then argue with everyone else who picks a different theme or thread of the Bible, but to learn from everyone who loves the Bible and to ask how we can integrate the fullness of what the scripture teaches and listen and learn from those that we might disagree with on other things. And here's what I found, and I'll say this too. Um, I will go teach in places and to people that will cause a lot of conflict, okay? Because I believe that it is important to go learn from people who do love the Bible, but maybe have a different emphasis. And I believe if there is an area that perhaps they have not gotten much biblical teaching, if they would invite me, I would go to teach them because I love them and I would rather help people than criticize them. That's my heart. That the way the world is right now, Christians need to be loving, serving one another, learning from one another, not attacking, especially publicly, one another. Um, because people are hurting and it doesn't help if we are publicly warring, we should be privately serving. There needs to be a humility in that. And I'm not saying I've been great at that. I'm not saying that I've been strong at that, but the way that I've been treated is the way that I would really like to have us treat other people with a heart of love and compassion, which means sometimes it is, okay, we're gonna talk about your sin. You know what? There is an idol in your life. You gotta dump that guy because his name is not Jesus and he doesn't even know Jesus and he cannot live at your house. Condemnation, right? <laughs> Condemnation, right, is uh, you are believing that your sin and your past are the only thing that God has for you in your future. And there is now no condemnation in Christ. Let me get that off of you. For other people, it's uh, oppression. You're believing lies, demonic torment. You're hearing things in the second person. You are a failure. You are a loser. You will never be loved. You will never change. You should kill yourself. When you start hearing that, you know it's demonic oppression. It's second person. Revelation 12.10 says that Satan is the accuser of the children of God, that he accuses them day and night. So you know what? That's not God and that's not you. That's your enemy and he's seeking to get you to harm yourself. You need to be delivered from that. Sometimes it's slavery. You've chosen a lifestyle of addiction and the bottle lies to you, the website lies to you, right? The casino lies to you, the refrigerator lies to you. It's promising you some sort of comfort that never comes. It's because you need the Holy Spirit to be your comforter and you need to experience freedom. Sometimes it's like, you know what, that's a lie. I know that's how you feel, but that's not true. That's not in correspondence with reality. So we need to get to the truth. You tell me the truth, about what you've done, I'll tell you the truth about what Jesus has done, and then we'll get beyond this. Sometimes it's brokenness. I met with a lovely, wonderful, I would say very mature, godly Christian couple. And they've been through just almost Job-like season. And they sat down with me and I asked them, I said, so where are you broken? And they said, what do you mean? I said, where are you broken? been through so much. All they had had was categories one and two. I explained to him, I said, there's brokenness in you. Where does that need to get healed up? They started crying. I said, oh, broken, like, that's Christian, we can do that? Yeah, 
Jesus was a man of sorrows, Isaiah tells us. He lamented and wept over Jerusalem. He processed his grief in a healthy way so that he could be a healthy person. Sometimes it's not solving the problem or finding the idol or rebuking the sin. It's just holding the person. And it's the ministry of presence. Just being with them. Because they're broken and they need to get healed up. Sometimes it is defilement. What you've done or what has been done to you has defined you. We need Jesus to redefine you. You're clean. You're not dirty. You're healed. You're not broken. You're you're loved, not rejected. Sometimes it's folly. These life choices are not wise. (laughs) What you're doing with your money, that's not smart. What you're doing with your dating relationships, that's not smart. What you're doing with your schedule, that's not smart. The friends that you're choosing, that's not helping. These are all bad decisions. I'm not in sin, but you're not being wise. You're not being wise. Sin and folly both hurt. You're causing pain to yourself. And lastly, sometimes it's injustice. The home you were brought up in, uh, the authorities that were over you, the things that were determined and decided for you and largely out of your control, those were not healthy or godly. Those will not be in the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes back, it's not gonna be like that. So we need to acknowledge that, but we need to get you from just being a victim to being someone who is healed up and forgiven and wise and filled with the Holy Spirit and moving forward with a kingdom lifestyle. Does this make sense? Okay. I love you. It's an honor to be your pastor. I appreciate you letting me sort of verbal process a little bit for you. You will hear these themes in my preaching. They're not there accidentally. This is all very intentional trying to sort of work it in. And what I don't wanna be as a Bible teacher is someone who just comes in and literally takes every section of scripture and slams it into one of 10 perspectives or preferences. We wanna be biblical in the fullness of the word. We want you to experience the fullness of what God has for you. And we wanna help people live the fullness of life that God intends for them, amen? And so I'll just say this as well. Some of you come from all these different groups and that's the beauty of a brand new church plant. We have people from all kinds of groups and backgrounds and perspectives. And I believe by God's grace, we're a lot better together. We're a lot better together. If we love, honor, respect, and learn from one another and teach with humility as the opportunity provides. So Father, thank you for this wonderful team. Thank you for their loving and giving and serving and praying and caring. And Lord God, for each precious soul that you would entrust to us here at the Trinity Church, would we love them well? Would we serve them well? And Lord God, help us to grow in your word, the fullness and richness and breadth and depth of your word. Uh, Lord God, it's a living word. It's It's a word that always changes us. There's always something more to experience, to learn, to grow from, to be healed from, to be changed by. I pray for my friends here today, Lord God. I thank you for the honor it is to be their pastor. And I pray if there's anything that you would have for them, that they would capture that category or those categories and that they would grow in those areas and mature in those areas and heal in those areas. And Lord, for the people that they're walking with or even the people that you've not yet brought to the Trinity Church or into their lives, that we would continually be prepared to love and serve and honor and cherish and steward those precious people. Because Lord Jesus, they're so important that you died for them. So might we live to serve them in your good name, amen.